invite you to turn your Bibles uh, to the Gospel of John. You haven't heard that from me for a while. And we return back to our studies in the Gospel of John chapter 12. John chapter 12. If you just look at your page uh, with the chapter open before you, uh, just as a reminder, it's a, the way that John has articulated the story of Christ in this chapter is just the main headings are a good review for us. Um, I will remind you that the public teaching ministry of Jesus Christ is drawing to an end, his earthly ministry. Um, he has now positioned himself to enter what we call today in modern uh, language the, the Passion Week uh, may seem um, interesting to be talking about this uh, in the summertime, but there's no no time that is not appropriate to speak of Christ's passion. He has just raised Lazarus from the dead, which has sparked an intense plot to kill him. Um, his death then is prefigured by Mary's anointing of his uh, feet and Bethany. And again, as we call it today, Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, that has now taken place. And then we read in verses 20 to 21 these words. And I would ask you to cast your eyes upon your Bible, John 12, 20 to 21. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. All that I have explained has taken place. Then we seemingly just have these words that some Greeks wanted to see Jesus. It is almost so embedded in the text that you would read on and ignore it. But for those who have studied God's Word, and particularly those who have looked upon the redemption story as it has unfolded from the beginning of Genesis through to Revelation, realize that in eschatology, that word meaning the last days, the unfolding of the last events, this is in a significant, 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 significant event. If I was not teaching expositorily this morning, if I was teaching on last day's eschatology, I would not avoid this. The arrival of non-Jews to Jesus is a tremendously significant event. It is a prophetic event. And... I'm not going to take the time to go into it because John focuses on another aspect of this and that is in fact the story of redemption. We read that in verse 32. We read the words of Jesus or and I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all 
all people, all kinds of people, Greeks, Jews, all kinds of people will be drawn to me. It would be foolish for you to think that that is a statement of universal salvation upon all people. The entire canon of scripture would deny that interpretation. Jesus is meaning by this now that he has ministered to the Jews and now the Greeks are getting interested in the gospel. And when he dies on the cross, his death is going to draw all kinds of men worldwide, every nation. This is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So I say all this to just to give you a taste of the depths of this passage that we often just skim over uh, like a powerboat on a sea. The Greeks represent the inclusion of all people in the body of Christ. But the Greeks also triggered something in the mind of our Lord. These Greeks that were seeking to talk to him triggered something in the mind of our Lord. Jesus recognized that this time that he was appointed for had now come. Having seen the Greeks come and, and want to see him, it triggered in his mind the hour has now come. You recall in this gospel, and we've already talked about it, there were instances when things occurred in the life of Christ and the author said, his hour has not yet come. Well, beloved, now the hour has come. We have now reached the eschatos, the end, for what he was destined for, the hour that... He was sent to this earth. This crucifixion that Jesus is going to endure, and we understand that through the terms, I will be lifted up. And when we read the passage, you will see that it's clearly relating to him being placed on a cross, the manner which he would die. This crucifixion is going to trigger like a bowling ball, a number of events in the world. It's going to trigger the glorification of the Father. It's going to trigger the commencement of judgment on the world. It's going to trigger the demise of Satan. And it's going to trigger the exaltation and the finished work of Jesus himself. All this is going to happen at Calvary's cross. And then Jesus in this passage is going to also end this section with another invitation of grace to those who would come. And if you're listening to me this morning, either here in this auditorium or online, I plead with you to hear the invitation that Jesus is going to offer you before we end. So having said all that, let's read the text. My passage of study is from John 12:27 to 36. John 12. 27 to 36.
In exegeting this passage, you would be well to note the use of the English word now. Remember I said this is triggering something. Now. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Let's pause. Someday, when you and I get to heaven, and we have time to sit at the feet of Jesus and ask questions, one of them might be, can you teach us what were some of the emotional and, uh, and what were some of the emotions and some of the sentences in the Bible? Do you see how you could read this in a way that would be a wrong interpretation? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I've come to this hour. You could say it in a defeating way that you say the same words. How you say it would sound like Jesus is at the end of his defeat. But you could read it this way. The way I would prefer to understand it. Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Insert brackets. Of course not. For this purpose I was brought to this place. Do you see the difference? This is the anguish of the cross and the enthusiasm of the Savior just pummeling together. Would I dare say? No, this is why I'm here. And then he says in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. Isn't this incredible story? A voice came from heaven. One of only three times in the life of... A voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going while you have the light believe in the light that you may become sons of the light O Father how we also want to glorify you in the reading and the study and the application of this passage. Oh, I were smitten, Lord Jesus, by the depths that is in these words. This is a passage pregnant with truth that brings glory 
to you and glory to the Father. And may we have that self-same emotion and will right now. That in our thinking and in our application we will glorify you. Help us to do that for the sake of Christ. Amen. As I said, this event is going to trigger worldwide life-changing events. Four of them I see here. This is Jesus going to the cross is going to cause like a tsunami in world history events that will take place and we're living in today. That's why the cross is at the crux. I actually said a redundant thing there. I used English and then Latin. That is why the cross is at the crux. That is why the cross is at the cross of human history. That is why we have a before Christ and an after Christ. That is why when you write a check today, you put 2020 on as the year. The year of our Lord 2020. Because approximately 2,020 years ago, everything changed. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ caused global implications. What I hope you'll take from this passage, and when you leave these doors, what I hope you'll take from this passage is if someone ever asks you, well, why is the cross necessary? I hear that question posed in discussions and apologetic debates. Why was the cross necessary? Or what's the big deal about the cross? Or what is the significance of the cross? I'd like you to remember the four things that I find in this text that are that the cross cause significant changes in the world. I wasn't quite bright enough to alliterate this or make an acrostic. Maybe by next Sunday I will. But if you're taking notes, here they are again in summary. First of all, the cross glorified the Father. Secondly, the cross brought judgment on the unrepentant. Thirdly, the cross brought the demise of Satan. And fourthly, the cross brought salvation to God's elect. It came as an actual event, not a potential event. It actually accomplished salvation in those who would believe. Now in my ambition, I thought, that's what I'll preach today. But when I got down to work, I found I could only accomplish number one. (laughs) Number one. So the only point I'm talking about this morning is the first event that it brought glorification to the Father. Glorification 
to the Father. We see that again in verses 27 to 29. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. The verb troubled is a strong one. Jesus definitely understood the anguish that he would experience when he took your sin as a believer on him and my sin. He definitely understood the revulsion of my sin on the cross. He didn't say, though, Father, glorify me. He will later when we get to John 17. But he didn't say here, Father, glorify me. There was a higher purpose for the cross, and we don't talk about it enough. The cross primarily glorified the Father. The cross glorified the Father. So someone comes up to you in the questions that I just posed. What was the necessity of the cross? The Father needed to be glorified. Why is the cross such a big deal? The Father needed to be glorified. Now John doesn't explain this here. To to dig in and find a deeper clarification of why the Father needed to be glorified, I invite you to turn back or turn ahead to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And we're going to be reading verses 21 to 26. Remember the question in our mind is, why did the Father need to be glorified? Why did the Father need to be extolled? Why did the Father needed to be seen in all his the weight of his attributes, in his completeness, in his glory? Why did the Father need that? Romans three twenty one to twenty six. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now watch this. This is the key phrase. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present times times so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith 
in Jesus Christ. Why did the Father need to be glorified? He needed to, his righteousness needed to be seen. The Bible teaches us this reality, and I'm sure there's someone here going to be shocked when I say this. The Bible teaches us this reality that God cannot unilaterally forgive sin. There's a whole world of people out there hoping that He can. He can't. God cannot just simply say, Oh, you seem sincere. I forgive you. If God does that, He is unjust. He is unrighteous. God, by His nature, must punish sin. He cannot forgive sin. We even know in the verse that we often as believers embrace, hopefully daily, if not more often, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. God must forgive sins in a way that is just. He cannot just unilaterally say, Oh, you're a fine folk. (laughs) I forgive you. He has to be just. And God cannot be just unless justice is met. God's a holy God, and His holiness determines that His wrath is addressed to sin. That is a necessity for God. In His holiness, He must punish sin. You will hear it said, and it sounds pious. I kind of sound like Jesus here. I hope you hear the words of Jesus. You have heard it said, God does not hate the sinner, He hates the sin. That is so far from being truthful, I can't believe that it so, has so much traction in Christendom. Psalm 7.11 says, God feels indignation towards the sinner every day. In the old authorized version it says, God is angry with the wicked every day. In Psalm 11.5, he says that the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. Paul said to unrepentant believers in Romans 2 that if they fail to repent, they are storing up wrath. Storing up wrath for themselves. God cannot pass over sin. He cannot just unilaterally say, okay, I forgive you. Every sin that God forgives has been punished or will be punished. 
Through the death of Christ, the righteousness of God was declared because in the cross, those who God had forgiven, for instance, in the Old Testament, were looking forward to the when the punishment would actually be taken. And for those of us today who are in Christ, who are justified, we are justified because somebody, one very perfect, special sacrifice, went to the cross and paid for our sin. Now sin can be, in Paul's words, propitiated. It's a big word that has no English equivalent. You must say propitiation. I'm sorry, it has no, there's no one word that has an equivalent. It means this, the holy wrath of God has been satisfied. That's what that word, one word means. And Paul says so clearly, God put forward as a propitiation by His, or Jesus, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. God is the justifier of any person, past, present, or future, who places their faith in the finished work of Christ because it was the cross that justified Him justifying many. Now that's a... Big load of words. But let me say it again. And if you get this, you get the passage. The cross justified God in justifying many. It vindicated His righteousness. If Christ had not come and died for the sins of the Old Testament saints, if Christ had not come and died for your sin and my sin, and God just said, you're forgiven. He would be an unrighteous, unjust God. He would be a limited God. He wouldn't be God at all. When Christ died on the cross for sinners, His Father and our God would be vindicated. It's unfair for God to say... Well, you're forgiven, and you're forgiven, and you're forgiven if there's no justice. And Jesus went to the cross in obedience to the Father to receive the just wrath that was due to me and due to you so that His Father would be vindicated, so that His Father's righteousness would be seen, so that God the Father would be glorified. We could never have been forgiven freely by grace. And God retain His righteousness unless someone took our sin and paid the full and complete price for our sin. To fail to do that would rob God of His glory. To fail to do that would make Him unjust, unrighteous, unworthy. He would not be God. 
God's justice demands that every one of us here in this room and listening online, God's justice demands that the price be paid for our sin and that His justice be satisfied. In God's goodness, He withheld justice on the Old Testament saints. Paul says He he passed over them temporarily. In His goodness, He did that, knowing that His Son would pay the ultimate price of the wrath of God on His own body, on the tree. So Jesus prayed in John 12, 28, Father, glorify, glorify your name. And the Father said, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it. Beloved, those of you in Christ, let me bring this to an application. The crowd heard that voice in verse 29 and 30. We read that many of them were confused about what was said. Some of them disagreed with one another what was said. Some only heard a loud noise. But I want to ask you a penetrating question this morning. When you hear the voice of Jesus pray to the Father... Father, glorify your name when I'm lifted up. And you hear the voice of the Father say, I will glorify it. Are you hearing clearly what's going on here? I think it's possible for someone to be sitting here this morning and you just hear a lot of loud noise. It's meaningless. Just noise. Some of you might sit here and just debate about what you actually heard. Some of you will be surprised and say, I thought the reason Jesus went to the cross was for me. (laughs) I thought it was about me. I thought that's the reason he came, was for me. (laughs) And Pastor Jim, I'm so disappointed because I came here to feel good about me. The primary purpose of the cross was to bring glory to the Father. The primary purpose of the cross was to bring glory to the Father. And the fact that that is the primary purpose for those who have ears to hear and hearts to believe, the fact that that's the primary purpose ought to bring to you this morning the greatest assurance of your salvation. Because the word from the Father to the Son was, I will glorify it. That means my sins have been paid for. That means that God 
has been vindicated and righteous. And when He says to me, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, past, present, and future, my security is settled. And if you're here this morning and you say, no, it's not. You haven't heard this word yet. You're with the crowd, confused. Glorify your name. I have and I will. That secures the believer forever. Because there's not one ounce, one ounce of debt that you have to pay. And the gospel can come to people who haven't heard and say, put your faith in Christ, it's free. And they can believe it and be saved. When Jesus glorified the Father on the cross, He eternally established a home for believers in the Father's bosom. Without the glorification of the Father on the cross, we have no salvation. We have a limited, unrighteous God. But because of the glorification of the Father on the cross, we have complete and sure salvation. And it's all of grace. Not an ounce of you or me. Your eternal security and your assurance of salvation is founded on these words. Father, glorify your name. Along with the answer, I have and I will. Then Jesus says, Jesus says to those who are outside of Christ. That is the light and truth of the gospel. Believe while you have the light. Because if you put it off another day, if you say like King Agrippa, tomorrow I'll think about it. For you it might be eternal darkness. So repent and believe the gospel today while you can hear the truth that God sent His Son into the world to save sinners. And He did it through the death of His own Son who received the wrath of God in our place. And so every human being listening to me this morning At the end of time, you will either pay eternally for your sin or your faith will be in someone who did, whose name is Jesus. That's the only choices. Let's pray. As we have sung earlier, Father, send your spirit Cause your spirit to work in our hearts. 
cause us not to be like the crowd that day who heard mumble-jumble, who heard loud noises, who was confused. Help us to hear clearly the words of the Father, I have and I will. May it send us not into laziness, not into passivity, but may it give us tremendous confidence to live for you and to bring glory to you because you glorified the Father. Cause your word, cause your word to bear fruit in our hearts. And please receive any glory, any glory, this do your name. For we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.